Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is the All Sports Podcast devoted to your favorite teams in North Texas. Welcome to Ballsy, a production of the Dallas Morning News and Sports Day. Our weekly show is proudly hosted. Okay, strike that. Our show is hosted by Kevin Sherrington, Evan Grant, and myself. I'm David Moore, and who knows, maybe we'll have a special guest or two along the way. Catch other episodes by subscribing to the Ballsy Podcast on iTunes. We're also on social media. Just search Ballsy Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll be notified of the latest episode. Don't forget, it's Ballsy with a Z. Are you ready, sports fans? Ballsy starts now. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Ballsy, the Sports Day DFW Dallas Morning News Sports Podcast. And that is one of the last times that I'm going to introduce it that way because, you know, we are sinking the name Ballsy. I, I don't, I'm not bitter about that at all. It's the, it's the name I came up with, really clever with the little Z on there instead of the S, you know, it was kind of out there, it was edgy kind of thing, you know, not the kind of thing your grandmother would name a podcast. That's what uh, all the millennials said. It was very edgy. Oh, very edgy. Yeah, they did. They and and we it. followed it up with with edgy stuff like references to black and white movies and <laughs> Citizen Kane. I think we spent an hour on Citizen Kane about a year ago. Foods yes, that uh, were eaten back in in your heyday in the nineteenth century. Jello mold. Is Citizen Kane still a great movie? Are you yes, it off? is. Yes, Here it we is. go. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's not great. Okay, so stop it. You're anyway, old and you're not great. Oh, stop it. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be called the, the uh, Sports Day Insider, which, you know, that's that just tripped it right hasn't gone through legal yet. I don't think no. you were supposed to say that. Oh, Con- I think consul- I Consultants worked long hours on that. Yeah, well, it, it's I call it rebranding. Ins- we're going to rebrand ourselves. Yeah, we all we all need to be rebranded. Speaking <laughs> of branding, then uh, that's going to be able you can be able to fo- follow that on your Dallas Morning News podcast. You, you can find that. It's not going to be any problem at all. It's all going to be ubiquitous. Yes, it will be ubiquitous. So uh, I'm Kevin Sherrington, joined here by these other chipmunks you're hearing in the background, David Moore. Hello, David. Again, a very up-to-date reference. The the kids love chipmunk humor. (laughs) Well, you know, that that was a cartoon a couple of years ago. My kids (laughs) watched A couple of years ago. My kids watched that. It came out in a movie. Come on. Yeah, the the movie was 10 years ago. Wow. The rodent still exists, so yeah. it, it's okay. Yeah, it, exactly. it, it's that it, it would be worse if it had been like an extinct animal. Yeah. Well, yeah. Should we I talk guess. about mutant ninja turtles now? I think they're all, they're all the, yeah. they're all the rage. Speaking of extinct, and we are also joined by Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. That was Evan who was talking a minute ago. Evan, I could not believe. I could not believe. I'm going to say that one more time. I could not believe on Facebook last night that they at Rodeo Goat they have a bigger than life size cardboard cutout of you because of your new hamburger named after you. Let me just tell you, Kevin, that the women in Dallas have been lining up to have their picture made with 
the Evan Grant cutout, which is a slightly taller and very much slimmer version of the real Evan Grant. Yeah, they stretched you out. They did. I whoever um, the two dimensional Evan is much more attractive than the three dimensional Evan. Uh, as oh, the, the Rangers, the Rangers' motto may be "Cardboard is out and humans <laughs> is in." Mine is "Humans are out and my cardboard is in." So. Yeah, I, I, what I figure is that Gina will get that cardboard cutout and bring it home, and they just tell you to get lost. Probably. Yeah, that's all she needed anyway. Just kind of a, a, a kind of a symbol of a man. I don't know and, why she'd want to sully up her house with that. <laughs> I love the food oh, at Rodeo man. Goat, but my question is. Isn't the goal to get people into the restaurant? Let me tell you something. That burger is selling like well, the burger. I have no, I have no issue with the burger whatsoever. It's more the cutout <laughs> getting past that. Oh my god! The gosh. food again, impeccable. I'm just telling you. I, I think that the the city of Dallas is looking at adding that to their convention and visitor bureau uh, campaign. Yeah, come, okay. come. Come take your picture with the giant. It's it, big text and then the giant Evan. Yeah, the giant. Do, they, do Evan. they also have someone out front like spinning your cardboard figure around to get people to come in to buy the burger? <laughs> no, they don't. Anyway, that's enough of that. Uh, it was enough of yeah, it when really. I saw it on Facebook. Frankly, it was just oh my gosh! I had to go lie down for a little while after. Well, that. why don't you go try the burger and and then let 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 my taste speak again. For me. This isn't about the burger. We're not. I, I am a. This is not a, about the burger. I am a cardiac patient, Evan. I cannot <laughs> eat that thing. You know, it's un unbelievable what's all on it. Uh, it. I'm sure it's very good. It's enough for a family of four. I know that. Uh, so anyway, uh, we're going to move on from our, our burger discussion uh, to what's going on uh, locally uh, in, in sports. We're going to start off with a little, I believe as David called it, a potpourri. Uh, we're going to talk about the fact that uh, Will Zalatoris finished second in his first Masters, Will, who lives in Plano and went to Trinity Christian Addison, uh, a really good kid uh, and a good friend of Jordan Spieth, who finished in a tie for third. Uh, that's pretty good uh, for the Dallas area that finished uh, second and third at the Masters and speaks pretty well of what is coming. And I, I uh, on Monday or Tuesday morning, I talked to uh, Will Zaltoris, golf coach at Trinity Christian, Marshall Edwards. Uh, a Hillcrest alum, by the way, and, and for those of you who don't know, Marshall Edwards uh, won state in the 440 in high school uh, when he was at Hillcrest. So uh, as a, the parent of four Hillcrest kids, he's a, he's a legend at that school. Uh, well, and sprinting is an important part of the golf strategy. It is. Well, you know, if you, if you hit a really good shot, if you're Sergio Garcia, you hit a really good shot, you run down the fairway. It looks there really go. good. Um, but at any rate, yeah, he's, uh, he, he knows his golf too. Uh, Lanny Watkins, uh, rep, uh, recommended him for the job. So just, so, just so you know, and he just does it for fun. You know, he's the pro bono coach, which really fits into their budget out there, apparently at uh, Trinity Christian. Um, so anyway, uh, he, he said that, you know, when they play every year, they, uh, they have a national high school golf tournament out in Palm Springs. And, uh, when Jordan Spieth was a senior and Will was a freshman, Jordan was, of course, a senior at Jesuit. Um, they uh, they played in that tournament at the same time. Um, uh, going into the final day, uh, Will was leading. 
and uh, Jordan went up to Marshall Edwards and said, Coach, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to to overtake your boy today. He didn't quite overtake him, but he did tie him, and they ended up being co-champions. Uh, so they've been, they've been friends for a long time. And uh, uh, and right now, uh, Will's off to a roaring start here after being on the – he's still on the Corn Ferry Tour, but he's uh, competing very well. Uh, he's got a sixth-place finish at the, uh, at the Open, and he's also got, of course, second place at the Masters. And, uh, and Marshall is predicting that he says, I have no doubt within a couple of years, he'll be the number one golfer in the world, uh, which is quite something to say. Uh, but that's how much he believes in this kid. So the future is very bright with those two, Scotty Scheffler, uh, three guys coming from Dallas. Uh, of course there have been, uh, times in the past when in the Dallas Fort Worth area, we've had great golfers come from here, uh, and, and playing at the same time, same era, starting with, of course, uh, Byron Nelson and Ben Hogan, uh, both from Fort Worth. Uh, and, uh, and that was a, a great kickoff to North Texas golf. And these guys are coming right in that same vein. So it's going to be a lot of fun to watch them as they uh, plow through the rest of the fields in the years to come. When it seemed like Spieth, Spieth's downward spiral had gone on forever, but it, it's come so early in his career and now what we've seen over these last five to six weeks. And, and to me, this is encouraging for him because you're seeing him build back to where he can compete. And, and it came in steps because earlier this year, um, what was happening after the first two rounds, he was up at the top of the leaderboard and then it just completely got away from him in round three and four. And he was unable to sustain what he was doing and so you still had a sense he's not close. But since then, he's been putting himself in that position again. Uh, he's been responding. And, and now you're seeing him in the fourth round. And again, while he didn't have an outstanding fourth round, uh, it, final round in the Masters, uh, he got off to a very slow start. So he really competitively never had a chance. But he didn't let it get away from him. And, and he stayed there and he, and he stayed third. So I think you're... You're seeing him respond late uh, in tournaments now, which you had not seen from him in about two and a half years. And so that's, that's the other encouraging thing that leads you to believe that, um, you know, he, he probably is back. And, and another thing is, you know, I, I think he had, I think of just about everybody in that final round, certainly of anyone in the, in the final 10 groupings, I think he made less putts between 10 to 18 feet on Sunday than anyone else. And he still finished third. So he's putting it in good spots. He's normally a good putter. That has come back. He just didn't have it in that final round. So uh, all the elements are there for him, it looks like. I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how he does in the PGA. Yeah, I did too. You know, he just uh, – the, the ball striking just been an issue. You know, even even at his, in his peak, uh, Jordan was capable of missing a few fairways. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and what's always been great about him – has been his ability to scramble uh, that he never loses faith or never lost faith in his ability to get himself out of trouble uh, in, in a lot of ways uh, you know, from that mindset, he reminds me of Phil Mickelson uh, that, that Phil's always must see golf just because you're waiting to see what he's going to do. Is he going to hit a terrible shot? He's going to do something crazy. Is he going to hit a great shot? What, what's he going to do? 
George has been a little bit of that in the last uh, uh, six months or so as he has kind of got his game back together again. Uh, I, I do believe he's going to do that, though, and I, and I think that comes so much uh, as I was uh, talking to uh, Marshall Edwards about this, about these young guys in golf and, and how well they're playing and how comfortable they seem to be in these kind of situations and nothing seems too big for them. And, and he was pointing out, he thinks that's just because of the rise of, of junior golf and how it's become like everything else in sports and like sports here in Texas, you play golf 12 months out of the year. Uh, it's, it's no longer a deal where you're just playing occasionally. Uh, it's like, it's like basketball in Texas now has, has come so far. Uh, I was talking to people about that last week about uh, why is it that, uh, that all of a sudden uh, basketball teams in Texas, college teams, high school teams, Fran Priscilla said that the, the high school basketball in Texas has never been better. The college basketball coaching in Texas has never been better. Uh, and I think what you're seeing here is that, you know, Texas has always been famous for its football. Well, now we're starting to see uh, all the other ways that uh, you're, you're going to see the, the breakout of sports in Texas and, and golf just is just caught up in that, in that sweep as well. So uh, we, uh, that, that's our, our, our golf segment uh, for today in the potpourri. Uh, now we're going to move over to the, to the Mavericks, uh, maybe the most maddening team uh, in the. Uh, I'm the giving you a golf America. clap. In the golf club. I like that. Thanks very much. Uh, you know, here, here, the Mavericks have been all over the map uh, this season. It's just been so frustrating to watch this team. You know, of course, early on, we, you know, they, they, they started out pretty well and they went through the COVID problems where they lost nearly half of the rotation. Uh, and so we kind of gave them some uh, uh, say, okay, well, we understand that. Uh, we understand that Chris Stats Porzingis is trying to come back from, you know, this, uh, this knee injury and knee surgery. So we, we get it. So they, then they, they finally put it all together again. And then they've got their chance to move because this is really important because of the playoff format. that's going to be this year in which uh, if you finish seventh or lower, you're in a play in tournament. Nobody wants to be in a play in tournament. Nobody. You you have to be in that top six. I projected that this team would be a fifth seed this year. They had the opportunity to make that move lately. Uh, they did pass San Antonio to get into seventh place, but now they're just stuck uh, there. Uh, they had their opportunities to beat a bad Houston team. They lost that game. Uh, they had a, the opportunity to beat a wounded San Antonio team. They lost that opportunity. And then they just looked terrible Monday night against Philadelphia at home. Uh, that, that was probably, to me, one of the worst losses of the year. And what was happening when you were talking about the, um, you know, they had a five-game winning streak before, and you started to say, okay, uh, you're starting to see more here uh, with Porzingis, uh, you know, a little bit more rapport with, with Luca as far as playing on the court, uh, some bigger numbers more consistently for Porzingis. Um, and then you're, but, but the other thing you were saying was, oh, look, defensively you're really starting to see the strides they're making defensively. Look what this team does. Well, good defensive teams don't go out and lose to a Houston team that has lost, what, something like 23 of 26 games. Uh, you know, that, that's what good defensive teams don't do. When your offense is off against bad teams, you're still able to win these games. So you can't beat a Houston team that isn't competitive. Then you come back and you don't double – uh, the most dangerous shooter on the Spurs on the final shot in, in that game, and you lose that. And then you come against Philadelphia, 
and you have no defensive answer for uh, Embiid. I mean, you can't do anything against that team defensively. And so now what you're, what you, you know, what you've kind of latched on to saying, look, we are starting to show improvement defensively. This is going to help us in the playoffs. One week later, you're going, well, have they really? And that's been the, that's been the tale of this entire season. Every time you start to say, well, now they're starting to get a little bit of traction. You're starting to see them gel. They're starting to work through all of this. Um, it, it's two steps forward, one step back. Uh, or in some cases, one step forward, two steps back. And I think you're seeing a little bit of that now because they were at the juncture to get out of that seventh spot. And these these three straight losses have just been crippling toward that. Yeah, I, the thing that disappoints me about this team so far, and, and you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, to make a judgment on, on teams when they're adding players and, and guys are coming off injury, and you had the things that have happened so far. You don't want to make a, a snap judgment on people. But uh, I was counting on a lot more from Josh Richardson. Uh, you know, he's a good defensive player, and, and he's brought a little bit of an edge to them in that, from that standpoint. But when they really counted on – I mean, he was – brought in as a two-way player he was not just a guy that was just going to be for defense I mean this was a guy who was considered by some one of the best young two-way players in the league uh when he was in Miami a couple of years ago uh and he didn't play particularly well last year in uh, Philadelphia and we kind of felt like maybe that was just a bad mix uh there and then in a new environment maybe he'd be better well he hasn't been better uh in, in some ways to me he looks worse uh, it, there's just when, when Porzingis is out of the lineup, if Tim Hardaway doesn't bring something uh, the, or, or Jalen Brunson, you know, they're sunk, you know, and, and that's not, you know, Josh Richardson is a starter. That has to happen. He has to bring that every night. He needs to be scoring 16 or 17 points a game. Uh, and they need to be able to count on that. And they're not getting it from him. And then when you look at this whole thing too, with between Porzingis and uh, Luca uh, you know, Brad wrote a story, Brad Townsend wrote a story about that, talking about comparing, is this relationship anything like the one with the three J's? Well, no, it's not nearly as bad as that. But I do believe what we have between Przingis and Doncic is the fact that these are two alphas, right? And, and, and KP is used to being that. That's what he was in New York. Uh, and, you know, in the, in the Houston loss, he didn't touch the ball in the fourth quarter, right? Right. Uh, how crazy is that? He, he's your number two. How can this guy not touch the ball in the fourth quarter? And he brought that up afterwards. Uh, and that is how problems develop because that, because there is no good or rational explanation for that. And so then it comes down to, well, who has the ball in his hands and who is not getting it to him? So why isn't he getting it to him when we laud him for what such good decision-making? So, uh, yeah, but, but that's another element when you have the ball in your hand all the time, when a key player is out of the flow, uh, you have to find a way to get him back into the flow. And maybe that's the part of, of Doncic's game. We haven't, uh, you know, when everything's going great and he's, he's in transition, he gets the ball wherever, but you're not in transition all the time. So then you need to be able to get the ball uh, to certain people. You can't go too long uh and, and cool off your your primary offensive threat after you um and and that's an area where again you know they still haven't played together that much <laughs> when you look at the injury last year when you look yeah. at the back-to-backs this year 
uh, that, that Porzingis has been out. They still haven't played together that often. And, uh, you know, going back to Richardson, that's the other thing. If, if you're really a good two-way player in this league, what that means is, well, when Porzingis is out, then you're, you need to emphasize your offense that night. That's more important than your defense, usually based on what your matchups are going to be. And Richardson just hasn't risen to the occasion offensively on the nights Porzingis has been out enough to where you feel good about what he's been doing. No, you don't. And you know, I, I want to ask you this, David, and then we're going to move on and uh, and talk about uh, the Rangers, a team that really sucks. Um, It'll be uplifting. Yeah. Is how much of this is Rick Carlisle's fault? Because look, I, I I've always been a, a Rick fan. I think he's done a great job. He's won the only NBA title in the uh, uh, in the Dallas history. It's all great. Uh, but a couple of things. One, uh, he took the blame for not uh, doubling up on DeMar DeRozan the other night uh, for the last shot when the Spurs beat the, the Mavericks on the last shot. Uh, of course, you know, that's what a coach should do. He should take the blame for it. He should say, this is mine. I don't know how much of that is Jamal Mosley, who's the defensive coordinator, you know, that he said, nah, we don't need to do that. And, and maybe Rick's just going along with it because that's his guy. Um, I don't know if somebody actually missed the assignment and Rick was covering for that. But also in this in this situation, uh, I'm asking two questions at once here. Uh, it, the other thing is when Rick's explanation for um, Przingis not touching the ball in the fourth quarter against the Rockets was that well we had a situation there where the, they're putting their best defender on KP, and so we're we're trying to find the guys who are getting the lesser defenders at that point. And it's like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that in theory. This is your second best player. You don't desert your second best player in the fourth quarter just because you're getting better matchups someplace else. That's not how it works in the NBA. You know, your your best players get the ball when you need to, for them to get the ball. That's that's just the way that it is. And and that's the thing about KP. He's a nat, a matchup nightmare, right? He's seven three. Who's supposed to be able to guard him anyway? Now, if he's getting doubled, I get it. You know, then get the ball to somebody else. But I don't care who the best defender is. There's very few of them who are seven feet tall. Yeah, and if your other options are working, you keep doing it. But but I go back to, um, this goes way back, the, the first uh, Mavericks head coach, Dick Mata. And uh, late in a game, Aguirre didn't take the shot, made the pass, and they lost. And I believe that the pass was to, to Pat Cummings. And after the game, Dick Mata made a point of saying, okay, he made the right basketball play, but it was the wrong play for the situation. Meaning, do you want to get the ball to your fourth option to take a game-winning shot? Or do you want to keep it yourself or give it to you or Jay Vint? You know, I mean, it was so, – so the point is you can make what the – but that's the other thing about a defense. The defense wants you to get, give the ball up to those guys because they're willing to take their chances with uh, Melly, Smith or... Melly and these guys making sure. shots to beat you. So, I mean, that's – so it's uh, – you can't always just take what the defense gives you. And, and Rick knows that too. And – uh, you know, Porzingis needed to be more involved in that game. And I think, but I, while Doncic is a very responsible player and he understands the obligation that comes with his position, I still think that Rick and the organization 
are hypersensitive about being too critical with him in public because they want him to be here long term and they don't want to create any ill will. So I think Rick trips over himself not to criticize Doncic publicly, unless maybe Doncic has come out first and said, I should have done that. And then he will follow up on it. Um, you know, because it was interesting in the, in the San Antonio game, and I didn't see the post game, but uh, Carlisle's initial answer was about, well, you know, we talked about it. We didn't do it. There should have been a rotation. I'm not sure what happened there. We'll have to go see. And then he actually left the podium or, or he left the Zoom then came back and said he wanted to clarify his statement and that it was his fault on why it didn't take place. Well, I saw a quick replay. It appeared to me that you could make the argument that Doncic should have doubled in that situation, that he should have left his guy to, to run at him, to, to do the double, to try to get the ball out of DeRozan's hand, or at least make it more of a contested shot. So I think a lot of times when you don't hear specific criticism, a lot of times that is criticism toward Doncic, but they're just very careful. They, they feel it's more productive to deal with that individually with him than to shame him publicly at this point of his career uh, when they need to re-sign him and keep him happy going forward. Yeah, I, I don't doubt that at all. I, I believe that 100%. I think everything they do is based on keeping him happy. It reminds me of that. Uh, there was a, was a uh, you guys. Much like Sports Day is done with you. Everything yeah. we do at the paper has been to keep yeah. you happy, basically. Right, yeah, they really tried to keep me happy. <laughs> it's like if you ask anybody there, they'll say, who? Kevin, who? <laughs> uh, there was a great old Twilight Zone episode where, uh, where uh, uh, I think the kid's name was Tommy. He had the power to do all these things, make these things happen. And so the whole family is there oh, yeah. trying to keep him happy. And if something really, if he, he could make anything happen, if it was horrible enough, they say, oh, go put him in the cornfield. He turned a man into a jack-in-the-box. And they said, oh, put him in the cornfield. You did such a good job on that. Put, put, put him in the cornfield. Uh, this is pretty much the, the Mavericks with Luca. It's like, oh, oh, Luke, whatever you want to do. Oh, that was great. That was great. Okay, all right. Put it in the cornfield, though. So, and that actor uh, went on to be Will Robinson and Lost in Space. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Bill yeah. Mooney, I think. That's all right. Look at look at you pulling that out of your hat. Very and, nice. and I got to tell you, contemporary references again. You guys have nailed it. Yes, just just for anyone listening, this is the Twilight Zone of sixty years ago, not the Twilight Zone movie of five years ago, which was terrible, terrible, terrible. That, listen, this is classic TV, Evan. Okay, I don't bring up bad references. I'm not. Dave is the one that brought up Lost in Space. That's a bad reference. <laughs> no, Lost in Space is wonderful. Oh, no. That was also a movie. Yeah. Listen, I, I was a tot when Lost in Space first aired, and Dr. Smith and that robot scared the bejesus out of me. So um, let's just forget. You know what? Let's just forget about Lost in Space. All right, let's we're, let's we're move on to the Rangers who were lost in space. The Rangers are lost in the West. Uh, lost. Lo this team has lost, Evan. Shut out three times in the last four games. Uh, that's, I believe you said that's only happened four times in club history. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, and here's, a, here's a really good thing to me that uh, Chris Woodward has in his lineup. He's when he's gotten Anderson Tejeda and Leody Tavares hitting back to back. That's, oh, I don't know, eight strikeouts a game right there, back to back. Well, actually, Solak 
Tavares and Tejeda last night were six strikeouts back to back in the first six innings. Um, I, I, I think the most surprising and alarming element of the offense struggling um, overall, the fact that the offense is struggling is not that big a surprise. No, uh, but I think the most alarming element right now is that that Solak has struck out 42% of the time he's, he's, he's come to the plate this year. He is supposed to be a, a good contact hitter and he has been a good contact hitter the first two big league seasons he's been, he's been up, but, but this year and being put in the middle of the order early on and, and trying to, I guess, as Chris Woodward said, you know, really just hold on to something instead of just letting go and, and saying, I trust myself. He, he's really gotten off to, to a bad start. He's, he's missing a lot of fastballs to hit. Um, he was dropped to the number seven spot last night. And so you drop your, a cold hitter into the bottom of the order with a guy who probably should be at the minor league camp in Leody Tavares right now. And back that up with a third guy who definitely should be at the minor league camp and Anderson Tejeda. And you, you know, you've got what amounts to three automatic outs every time you get through to the bottom of the lineup. So that is a real, that is a real issue for them. But I, I, and as embarrassing as losing three shutouts in four days is and being no hit, um, that's rough. But I think we all expected that this Ranger team was not going to get off to a, to a great start. I, I, I think the, the matchups against Tampa Bay and, and San Diego only really serve to heighten what this team's long-term issues are. But I do have to say that uh, you come away from last night and when you step back and look at things through the long-term lens, the long term lens the performances of Dane Dunning in his first two starts with the Rangers have have been really the kinds of things that give you some some hope that uh hey they're on to something here and and I know people would have liked to seen him go longer than four innings last night uh but he had thrown 71 pitches and I think right now the Rangers are trying to keep him under 75 pitches uh but he's been really good in both of his first two starts yeah, he's uh, he he is very promising, and and you know this is to me what you're looking for in this season, right? Look, you know they're not going to be competitive. Uh, this is a team that's going to finish last in the West again. It's going to be a top five pick in the draft next year, which is all probably a good thing in the in the long term. Uh, and what you're trying to identify this year are just some breakout players. Who, who's who's going to take a step up here? Um, so far, you know, Dane Dunning is a guy I was thinking about that last night, watching him pitch, um, pitched very well for the white Sox last year. Frankly, I was, I was surprised they put him in that deal, uh, for Lance Lynn. Uh, and what I've seen about him is that, well, maybe he's just like a number three at best, you know, uh, as a starter and, and, you know, he doesn't throw real hard. He's not an overpowering guy. Uh, but what I love about him is that he, you know, he works fast he throws strikes. Uh, he's not afraid of his stuff. I love what he said when, when he was asked about, you know, throwing strikes. And he said, listen, Hall of Famers hit 300. I like my odds here. So meaning, obviously, 70% of the time, something good is going to happen for me, you know? And I, and I think I love the fact that he has that attitude about it. Uh, everything looks to me like this is going to be a really nice pitcher for the Rangers uh, going forward. I, again, I think this is a guy who I, I know it's such a generalized term, but but he competes. I mean, I, I, I think 
when you get him to to talk about his his performance he focuses in on on what his job is and not not doesn't get too caught up in the bigger picture didn't get caught up last night in the fact that he was matching up with with Tyler Glass now his job was to go out and compete against the Rays hitter uh I I think that he has um he's limited walks he he's he's given up two walks in in nine innings and struck out 11 um Gave up that home run with two outs in the first inning when he challenged the hitter in the Toronto start. And since then, he's, he's come back with eight scoreless innings. Uh, he has been – he's gone out there and attacked every inning like it's, a, like it's a new game and a new inning to win for him. And that's, that's been impressive. Um, and, and to your point, you know, you're, not many people are going to be Tyler Glass now. There's going to be guys who throw 95, and there's going to be guys who are really tall – um, and there's going to be guys who um, have great breaking balls, but not many of them have all three of those things. And, and so Tyler Glass now is an elite level pitcher, but you can also be a very good major league pitcher by executing command, moving your, making your fastball move. And that's what, that's what Dane has shown in his first two starts. I thought that Taylor Hearn is, is really been looking pretty good too. Uh, I, I like the possibilities there. I, I still don't know. Uh, what the top end is for him. Is he going to be a starter? Is he going to be a, a, a back-end reliever? I mean, w- what's going to be his role going forward? But uh, but certainly he's impressive. It has been impressive as well. Listen, I think for the most part, those two tandem positions have, have really worked out well. You know, Jordan Lyles has pitched pretty well in both of his starts. Wes Benjamin got got hit a little bit in the, in the second outing um, against San Diego but he throws strikes and he same kind of thing. He's not afraid to go after hitters and that will serve him. Well, Taylor has of that group of four, Taylor has probably the best stuff. I mean, he was throwing fastballs at 97 and 98 last night. The biggest issue sometimes is I don't know if it's mechanics or if it is the, the game speeds up, but he has these little fits of wildness that last can last one or two hitters that really put him in trouble. Um, Last night he gave up the home run. It was a, you know, an off the top of the wall home run. It's not a home run in in most, in at least half of the major league parks. But he went after hitters. He walked the first hitter he faced, again came right back out and went after hitters. And as long as he does that, he's going to continue to get more and more um, opportunities. And those opportunities are going to get longer. You know, three innings last night was his longest major league appearance, and. He did it on 43 pitches, was efficient with it, was um, worked pretty well. Uh, I can't fault the Rangers for giving up a solo home run, you know, in 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 nine innings against the defending AL champions. Uh, on that on that front, the pitching staff did their job. And and really, if you go back through the whole weekend, the, the pitching staff has matched up pretty well against two pretty good teams. It's just been the fact that the offense has, has, has had no answers whatsoever for good pitcher. And, and I don't want to, again, squash the streak of optimism and flashes of optimism that, that we've seen from the pitching staff. But, Evan, just as far as a daily lineup that is put out there, is this as ineffective, and not just how they're playing at the moment, is this as ineffective as a group that you've seen here in a long time? Well, I, I mean, I really feel like the more. The I mean, more I know it's I, early, but. 
I feel like the more accurate picture picture of where the Rangers offense is, is probably what they did against Kansas city and Toronto. I think they have the ability to, to really lock in on some at bats, but against Kansas city, against San Diego and Tampa Bay, they faced elite pitchers, Musgrove, Paddock, Tyler glass. Now those are, those are all playoff caliber pitchers. And I think, the fact that they're playing seven straight against these two teams is going to look kind of ugly on the box score. But I think if they can, if they can remain in their approaches, I think once they get back to playing more middle level pitching, the offense will start to perk up a little bit. And I also think that as these guys get more experience, at least most of them, I think that there will be some, some upwards trajectory. The big thing I'm concerned about right now, I mentioned Solak strikeouts. Um, I think that's the biggest established guy that you're concerned about. I just feel like at this point, from what I've seen from Tavares and Tejeda, that, you know, a lot of why they are in the big leagues this year was based on the fact that they kind of held their own, that they didn't get sunk last year in a once in a lifetime kind of unprecedented short season and I think that that was uh, – I, I don't think you got a real accurate portrayal of those guys. And nothing that they have done in the minor leagues has indicated these guys are ready to come up to the big leagues and succeed. Maybe they could hold their own, but they, they aren't ready to succeed. And, and so I think once the Rangers make a decision to move those guys back to the minor leagues and let them, let them get, get some success at the minor league level, I think the next time they come back they'll be much more prepped – uh, to not just compete up here, but also succeed. So let's look around uh, and see where we think some of these guys are going to be uh, when everybody's healthy. Um, when do we expect Willie Calhoun to be back? I think the earliest he could be back is, is Friday because he was going through intake testing at the alternate site on Monday. And my understanding is you have to go through a two-day inter- uh intake testing process then you have to be there three days before you can join a major league roster so i think by and large he's ready but i think to go through that process he's gonna it's gonna take until the weekend uh but i do expect that he'll be here come this weekend um now whether or not they're gonna play him in left field or whether or not they'll dh him i think it's a lot easier now to dh him because it it appears ronald guzman is going to be on the on the injured list for a I would expect a significant amount of time with what appears to be a knee injury. And so you may, you, you play doll in left field and you DH Willie against both lefties and righties. And then you move Eli white around the outfield as much as you possibly can potentially with him taking over in center. When you, uh, when you ultimately, I think make the call to let Leody start the, the minor league season with one of the, the double A AA or triple A affiliates. And then Chris Davis would be back when. He's at least two weeks away from being full go and able to play in games. So I would expect that we're talking about at least three weeks, maybe four for him to be ready to play in the big leagues. Yeah. See, and that's a real problem. This team is, is once again, predominantly left-handed at the plate. And that's, that's an issue. You know, you got to, you got to work a little bit of right hand. I know right-handed power is hard to come by in baseball these days, but uh, that that would be nice if they could get uh, something out of Chris Davis that when he comes back and he is eligible or able to play. Uh, and then you know, uh, there, there's just there are always issues 
with the Rangers, there, there are too many one-dimensional players on this team, and it always has been, uh, or at least there has been for a number of years. And, uh, and, and I think one of the reasons why they have one-dimensional players is because uh, when they've acquired them, like Willie Calhoun, that was the reason why the Dodgers put him in the deal with, with uh, Darvish, was that, yeah, they, they figured he'd probably be able to hit, but he's not a good enough athlete, especially in the National League, to be playing you know, every day. At a, in, in, in the field so uh this is kind of the the position the rangers have found themselves in i i really feel like uh that by june uh leote won't be here anderson tejeda won't be here uh at, at, frankly at that point uh who knows what nick solak's going to be doing they can't afford to be carrying a second baseman who really is not very good at his position uh, well i, I, I think hitting. you're I think there's the one difference I'd want to make between Solak and the, the Tejeda Tavares situation is listen, Nick hit at the minor league level. He proved sure. at the minor league level he was ready to for this challenge in the big leagues. He hit in 19 when he came up. Last year, again, not a great year for anybody um, and a difficult year for everybody. But I think this is this is a year you have to find out about Nick Solak. And that mean that means a longer period of a look than it does, I think, than than for Tejeda and Tavares because Tejeda and Tavares were up here strictly last year because they had been on the sixty man pool that there was there there were roster differences from from years past. They did okay for a team that was going to finish twenty two and thirty eight, but they have done nothing that indicates big time major league success. I will go back to the thing that I cited last week in my mailbag when somebody asked me about Leody Tavares is I use the example of Byron Buxton. You go look at Byron Buxton's numbers in the minor leagues at the same levels that Leody played and his OPSs were anywhere between 819 and 950. Leody's career OPS in the minor leagues was 692. Mm -hmm. And yes, he's a really good defender. And yes, he runs. But so does Buxton. The difference is you have to be able to hit in this league. And that's why the Rangers will take, you know, guys who are subpar defenders if they can hit. Leody has not yet de demonstrated that. And even with Buxton, he came up here, he kind of got his lunch handed to him for a year or two and had to go back to the minor leagues. And so it is a process. And these guys, I don't think there's any shame in the fact that, hey, last year they got some good exposure. This year, they'll get a good month of exposure, um, but there's a threshold here. And if this team is trying to start a, a new identity, the, the, the benchmark has to be we're bringing guys up when we have data and information that indicates there will be success. Not that we just believe that this guy is ready for a challenge. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's enough about the Rangers, frankly. Uh, and uh, I, I want to move on to, to other things we were talked about uh the uh the fact that north texas golf is as good now as it's ever been uh, go eagles uh, there you go uh go eagles whatever whatever that man okay you said uh, north texas no not 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 mean green golf no that's not what we're talking about uh, although uh, the mean green has a great uh a pitcher hope trout pitcher. line yeah. uh, through a perfect game that believed to be the first in ncaa history in which the perfect game of seven innings, all the outs were strikeouts, 21 strikeouts. I'm recommending her for the Rangers, for John Daniels. 
uh, in my newsletter uh, on Monday, I said that, listen, come on, let's do this. You've done worse. I've even got a billboard for you. We may suck, but there's always hope. How about that? What do you think? I was thinking the angels have trout. We've got trout wine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> listen, stick with your rodeo goat. Okay. That's, okay. that's terrible. That's terrible. all right. All can right. I go, can I go get a grouper sandwich now? It's an hour later here in Tampa. No, you may not get a grouper to celebrate our, our dear departed friend, uh, Jerry Fraley, uh, who loved a, a good grouper sandwich uh, in Tampa Bay. Um we, uh, you know, I guess I should go ahead and mention again that these are the, the dying days of Ballsy. We're, we're changing our name to Sports Day Insider, which is just as drab and dull as it can possibly get. But, you know, it, it, it links Good better. Good job there. Yeah, thanks. I'm really celebrating. <laughs> they always say the name wow. should say a lot about the, the product inside. <laughs> so dull and drab pretty much describes us. Yeah, I'm, I'm changing my name to, to you know, Jim Smith now, uh, just in the in the same uh, vein. So anyway. I always had right. you down as more of a Mortimer. Mortimer, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Mortimer Mouse. That, that's that's really good. There's a, there's a, a, a nice uh, uh, recent reference. Contemporary yeah. reference. Yeah. No kidding. All right. How about those Cowboys? It's that we're closing in on uh, draft day. I believe that's the 27th of April. Is that not uh, David? Is that when they it's around there? Well, you know, the, the, actually the first day will be the 29th of April. That's okay. the Thursday. And that's the first round. Uh, the 30th will be rounds two and three. And then May 1st, Saturday will be the rounds four through seven. All right. Uh, always one of my favorite things is team building. I, I love this kind of stuff. Uh, uh, I, you know, it was kind of a reverse thing growing up in Houston and watching the Astros and watching Speck Richardson trade all their best players. Uh, so uh, it was always very, you know, difficult uh, for me to, to, to live through all of that. As I always tell people, I, I, I lived and died with the Astros, mostly died. Uh, so, uh, it's, it's fun for me to watch teams build. And so, uh, you, there's no way to build better in any sport than in the NFL and through the draft. Uh, you're, you're getting quality players. You're getting guys who are making contributions immediately in many cases, if you've done your job correctly. And certainly the Cowboys have the opportunity to do that with a 10th pick. If they stay with the 10th pick, let me just start with that right there. David, do you believe the Cowboys will make the 10th pick of the draft at the moment i would say yes uh i know everyone talks about trader jerry and that was certainly the case but you know when you look at their recent success they've done it by and large by staying put uh that's not to say they won't move here and there um but look last year they stayed put and had a player drop to them um, you know, I, I think they've determined that there, there's a time to move, but the first round is not necessarily the time to do it because the cost is so high and you sit there where you are, go off your board and then make it work from there. And, um, so you know, that being said, if they do move back, it's not going to be too far. I, I don't see how they could one. I don't, I don't think they're going to jump ahead. I, I don't think they're going to jump into the top 10 to me. I think where they are at 10, depending on, on how it unfolds, if there's a quarterback there at 10 that a team behind them wants that's not too far behind a New England, say, um, I can see something happening. But I, I don't see them moving back more than three to five spots. And even then, uh, you get into the range of 
okay, did we really take ourselves off the top plateau and put ourselves at the top of the next plateau? And, and do we really want to do that? And, you know, they have some ammunition here. I, I do think they should move because they do have four compensatory picks and you have four picks in the first 100 in the draft. And, and that's, that's your value. That's where you need to hit. But to me, it's taking those compensatory picks in the, in the fourth or fifth round and combining them to move up higher in the third because you, tar you see a guy who's about to come off a plateau and you're going to drop down and you go, okay, I want that safety or I want that defensive tackle. And if I sit back here, I'm not going to get it. To me, I want to see the maneuvering more in the second, third round than I would say in the first round. You know, uh, and that's where I want to take us right now. So if we're, for the purposes today, we're just going to say they keep the 10th pick and they're not, they're not going to move. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of uh, on the edge on that, it, depending on, on who's available, uh, of course, at 10, uh, what do they keep that? And I, I really believe there's no way that New England stays at 15. I believe that Bill Belichick will trade up and try to get one of those quarterbacks. When you have this many quarterbacks that look like they're really good, and, and maybe some of us, especially a Mac Jones, who now, of course, there's talk that, that San Francisco might take him with a third pick. He's gone from being barely a first rounder to now people talking about he's a, he's a top five pick, uh, which is kind of phenomenal that that would happen. But at, at, at 10, if the Cowboys are picking, uh, and let's say that Patrick Sertain, uh, the, the, quarter, the cornerback from Alabama, and J.C. Horn, the cornerback from South Carolina, both are available at 10. Let's say that happens. Uh, which do you think the Cowboys might take? From the people I've talked to, they're both remarkably close. You know, Sertan has been at the head of the pack when you look at mock drafts around the league. Um, but boy, Horn is right there, and he has, he has an attitude and a chip on his shoulder about him that you see most successful cornerbacks have. And, you know, you, you look at that position, and yeah, – you don't want to minimize talent, blue chip talent, but some of the top corners in this league have been fifth round picks or later. And that speaks to the fact, I think it's not just the talent you have for the position and your understanding, but it's that temperament and mentality that you're constantly competing. You're constantly saying, I can beat this guy. And when you get beat, you shrug it off and you keep going. There have been a lot of outstanding corners from a talent standpoint who have not held up in this league as long as as well as corners taken later in the draft because they don't have that edge to them. They start to lose confidence. And there does seem to be something about um, J.C. Horn's mentality and approach that is very attractive. Um, I, I, you know, I think they're 1A and 1B. I, I think if one is off the board, you have no problem going with the other. If both are there, uh, it's your preference. I would, you know, Sertan has been in that spot for so long and where he played, you would give him the slight nod, but, um, I, I would not be surprised if they went with Horn over Sertan, because I do believe there's some personnel people around the league that do have Horn ahead of Sertan, but I would say the majority of people have Sertan ahead of Horn right now. You know, it's interesting what you said about the uh, fourth and fifth round cornerbacks. One of those fifth round cornerbacks was Richard Sherman, uh, who's carved out a Hall of Fame career uh, uh, with the Seahawks and the 49ers. Uh, and he, is my understanding, is a fan of J.C. Horn and believes he is the top cornerback in this draft. 
you know, uh, if, if I'm the Cowboys, uh, I'm going to pay attention to somebody's uh, opinion like that. Cause I think that Richard Sherman is one of the smartest cornerbacks has ever played the game. Uh, and I, I, I like the, the idea that, he is on board with it. Now, I don't know how well he knows J.C. Horn. I don't know how well he knows Patrick Sertain. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he's seen both of them play. Uh, and uh, I, I like the idea, as you as you mentioned and talked about, of a cornerback with an edge to him, a guy who's trying to prove something. You know, you have to motivate yourself in sports. And, and I think that these guys who say, who go through their career saying that, yeah, let's say Patrick Sertain got taken with the ninth pick by the Broncos and then, uh, J.C. Horn went 10th to the Cowboys, which has happened in a lot of, of mock draft scenarios uh, that I believe that J.C. Horn would be the type to say, you know what, that guy went before me. I'm going to show the Broncos. I'm going to show everybody. I was the best cornerback in this draft. I'm the best defensive player in this draft. So I, I think that, you know, you, you probably can't go wrong with either one of these guys uh, because they're they're really good talents and they and they play really well. And, and I love the fact that that Sertanis played for for Nick Saban, who's the best defensive backs coach in, in America. Uh, I think he might be better than anybody in the pros. And so I, I think that and Sertan and Trayvon Diggs, who played together at Alabama, coming back here to play, uh, there there's something attractive about that as well. Two guys who have played off of each other, with each other, know how to do go about it. Um, that, that helps as well. I, I don't think that should be minimized. No, I don't think so either. So I, I think either way, I'm good with them taking one of those cornerbacks. I, you know, of course there, there are other, uh, people that might be available as well. And well, here, here's the other, here's the other to throw out there. And to, and to me, this is interesting because if you look at the draft board, this is a very strong draft at corner and safety, another position of need, although they've got some veteran safeties they signed uh, coming off significant injuries, I would add, um, you know, in the second round, it's very strong in the second round and, and look how Trayvon Diggs worked out for them last year. That's the second round corner. So, you know, you can also make the argument um, should Dallas be simply fixated on corner or what if Rashawn Slater, the uh, offensive uh, tackle is there or, Micah Parsons, who is clearly regarded as the top uh, linebacker. You could make an argument from the draft plateaus and the way it breaks down that, you know what? We have a pool of guys we like at corner in the second round. We think are pretty good. Um, there's not an offensive tackle in the second round close to what we're going to be able to get with the Slater. Um, so why don't we do that there? And, you know, I'm not saying that's the way to go, but these are the, these are the conversations you have. And when, when you're looking at putting your draft board together and it comes down to, to how highly each of these are graded. I mean, if, if Sertan or Horn has a high enough grade and, and is graded higher than a Slater or a Parsons, then you go, okay, let's not mess around with it because we can go other positions in the second round. There'll be uh, some good defensive tackles there too. There'll be some, there'll be some linebackers there. Um, but let's just say for sake of argument that you don't go cornerback at number 10. Well, then the Cowboys are at number 44 in the second round. Um, you have a chance of either Trayvon Mooring or Richie Grant, two safeties are going to be there. I, I think there's a chance at least one of those guys is there. Uh, at corners, you have Asante Samuel. Uh, you have a, a, a player, a pass rusher like Carlos Basham, uh, Elijah Molden, uh, Joseph Osaya. Uh, you know, there's a there's a plateau of players, uh, Eric Stokes, Kelvin Joseph, 
uh, Tyson Campbell. Uh, those are, you know, Aaron Robinson, Adebayo. All of these guys are corners who are projected to be taken in the second round. So you have quite a, a wide path there uh, to get a corner. But it, like I said, it comes down to your grades and how highly do you have Sertan and Horn graded. And certainly out of those two corners, I would be shocked if it's one of those corners should be there. It's, it's difficult to envision a scenario where both of those corners are gone at 10. And, and right now, uh, I think there's, it's likely no defensive players go before 10 and, and Dallas has to pick and, and Sertan and, and Horn would be in the mix. It just seems to me the way the Cowboys have gone about constructing their roster here in the offseason, we have seen uh, them sign a bunch of safeties. Arkeon O'Neill is now apparently a linebacker, whatever he's supposed to be. Uh, They have signed offensive linemen. Uh, They have uh, uh, added at at several positions, but they have not added any cornerbacks other than re-signing Jordan Lewis. Uh, And that just says to me, we're going after cornerbacks in this draft. Uh, and, and I tell you, if, if you sign, if they, if they take one of those two players, either Sertan or, uh, Horn with that 10th pick, and if they sign, if they draft another cornerback in the second round or in the third round, I don't think there'd be anything the matter with that, uh, depending on what's available. Now, obviously they, they do have other needs. Uh, I, I believe that, you know, like they probably do need another linebacker. They, they need a, another defensive tackle. Uh, in our, our old pal, John owning our film studies major, he recently came up with his uh, seven round mock draft in that one. He had the Cowboys taking JC Horn with the 10th pick. Uh, he came up in the second round with that 44th pick Javon Holland, the safety from Oregon uh, Spencer Brown in the third round from Northern Iowa as an offensive tackle Cameron McGrone, a linebacker from Michigan with the 99th pick in the third round. That's that supplemental pick. The first one. And then in the fourth round, he has them taking Aleem McNeil, the defensive tackle from North Carolina State. Frankly, I was more excited about that pick uh, than some of the others uh, from what little I know about some of those other guys because Aleem McNeil is considered one of the best nose tackles in this draft, a a real run stopper, uh, not not much of a push as a pass rusher, but a kind of guy you can put in there and really take care of the run. And frankly, that was the Cowboys' biggest issue last year was stopping the run. It, uh, if you, if you can plug in a guy who can do that for you early, early in the count on first and second down, and then that takes a lot of the load off those linebackers who were looked really good a couple of years ago. Uh, but the last two years have been frankly, almost, uh, average at best, most of the time and most of the time below average. Yeah. Below average is uh, well below average, uh, and, and really, inefficient I, I would say and you know that's the thing we've seen through the years there have been some uh game-changing defensive tackles that have gone in the first round of the draft and, and Dallas has ignored them uh through these years because they place a premium defensively on corner and uh edge rusher uh and then you've seen them come in with some linebackers um you know, defensive tech, where they've been weak is up the middle, which is where you stop the run at defensive tackle and safety. Uh, those are really the positions they've ignored. And uh, I think it really came back to bite them last year. But, you know, after Christian Barrymore, uh, Barrymore uh, from uh, uh, Alabama, Alabama. Um, when you start looking at the other defensive tackles out there, I guess, Le- 
I guess Levi, uh, the guy Levi is, is another one to go after him. But then after that, you're really looking at late second round and then through the third round where that next group of tackles are. And as we said, you know, at the moment you have four picks in the first 99. Well, maybe you take that compensatory pick in the third to package with your other uh, to move up, uh, whether it's to get a defensive tackle there whether it's to get uh, one of the last pass rushers there. Now, remember that. That's something else Dallas has done. Where they are at 10, I think it's pretty telling. You know, blue chip pass rushers aren't going to last to 10. And there's really no one, there's no edge rusher that's in the discussion at 10 for Dallas uh, at the moment. Uh, Most of them seem to be a little bit farther behind, mid to late first. So, but that doesn't mean you're not going to get good value in the second round. And some of the best value they've gotten at a, at a pass rushing defensive end in a while is Demarcus Lawrence. And what did they do there? They, they combined their second round pick with another pick, a third round pick, to move up to the top of the second round to take Demarcus Lawrence because they felt he was the last pass rusher on that plateau. That's, I think, what Dallas needs to be opportunistic to do uh, at, at pick number 44 in the second round uh, is that makes sense for Dallas to do. And, and here's another thing too. I'm, you know, what's, if Dallas doesn't do that, what have they been known to do? Sit there and take a risk. What guy has the greatest upside? Um, you know, that's where they, they don't take. And again, I, you know, I want to give them the credit because I, I think their drafts have turned out pretty well recently. Um, but they've also followed the script of, you know, sit there, take the best player in the first round. But you know what? We're going to take a risk here in the second round. We're, we're going to get an injured guy who, who shouldn't be there. The only reason he's there is because he's injured. Well, there's also an injury history to contend with. You know, there, um, or we'll take Tristan Hill. There's some questions about him. But, boy, he's there in the second. What, boy, the ceiling on him is really high. They traditionally use that second round to go – oh, high ceiling, let's take the risk here and then get back to our board sort of thing. Um, I'm not so sure they should do that this year, especially with all the needs they have on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, I, I, think, I think a better use would be to take one of those compensatory picks, and if they're not going to stay at 44, to use that uh, to jump up and uh, pick someone who then suddenly you're staring at, okay, our first two picks are two walk-in day one starters. And now let's resume our draft from there. I don't think there's any question about that. I think what makes this draft different uh, from uh, some of the recent ones is that, you know, and you're absolutely right about the, their attitude about the first and the second round uh, and, and the success they've had. They've had some success with those second round picks, but also they've had to pay for them. You know, yes. uh, Jalen Smith, he had to wait a long time for him. A year. Uh, he then, didn't play his first year. Right. And, I, and then I it was a think, half a season into his first year that he played before you started to see dividends. And I, I and frankly, that just wasn't worth it. I don't think, I think as it's, as it's worked out, I don't think that Jalen Smith, you know, there was a, uh, there was another linebacker, Miles Jack that they could have had. And that and people were afraid of him because of an ankle problems that he had. Well, Miles Jack has had a very nice career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I, and I think that, uh, those are the kind of discussions now because as you pointed out earlier, they have four picks in the top 100 right now. If you go back and look at the Cowboys history, as I did uh, on the on the Cowboys, as Jerry Jones has owned the team in the 32 years that he's owned the team, we, we've seen lots of times, and we, we talked about, well, 
boy, when, when Jimmy was here, that's when they really knew how to draft. And that's when they got all their best picks and, you know, and, and, uh, and they missed that so much. What you'd look, if you go back and look, the difference was that in the, after Jimmy was gone, Jerry was trading out of the top 100 or the, then those top 100 picks. And that was the issue. I think more than anything else is simply that you, you don't have the top shelf players that you're picking from. You're, you're having to reach, you're having to guess on guys and, and project more than you are with these. If you look at, at the times in the last 32 years, when Jerry has had top 100 picks, they've done very well. Uh, and it, it's just, it's simply a matter of that. Now, now you can make the case that they should be able to make better picks at 150 and at 200 and 250. And I won't argue with you about that. What I'm saying is, is that anybody should be able to pick guys in the top 100, any, any professional organization should be, should be able to find good players in the top 100 players in the draft. And the Cowboys have certainly proven they can do that with Will McClay in charge of the draft. Yeah, and, and don't have theme drafts like you had the one draft where, well, we'll just go after special teams players. Oh, so we'll just stock brutal. we'll stock our special teams. This is our depth draft. Um, you know, you can do that in free agency, especially, and, and that's what they've done. I mean, they in my mind, they've gotten their depth here in free agency, uh, and not all of those guys are going to stick. Go out there and, and get as many blue-chip players as you can. And when you have four picks in the top 100, you know, if you want to use that leverage and take it down to three picks in the top 100, I'm fine with that. If all three of your guys are going to be step in day one starters, but don't get too cute. Don't go, Oh, okay. Well, this guy's coming off an Achilles, but you know, uh, next year he's really going to be something. So we'll take him in the second round. I think this, this draft, you know, looking at that first round pick, that guy better be a day one starter. Uh, no question. No question at corner. Uh, the second round pick, uh, which is uh, it's going to be the 44th pick, a very high pick as well. Uh, that guy should be close to starting. I'm not saying day one, but he should probably be playing a lot and probably at some point uh, uh, starting. In, like in Trayvon the- Diggs. You, you work in there sooner rather than later. Yeah, no absolutely. Question. So that's two guys. Uh, and, and I will and say I- Mike McCarthy has a history of playing young players and getting in, in there as quickly as possible. I, I think he, that's the approach he likes. Yeah, and so I, I think if you ended up uh, this this fall with two guys who ended up at starters at some point, uh, this, one guy needs to be a day one starter, uh, another guy starting, and then, a, and then at least one other guy contributing, and I'm not talking about special teams. Though, yes, you should be getting some special teams players in the fifth and sixth round. There's no question about that, uh, and they're going to need that. Uh, and speaking speaking of which, what happened here with our with our special teams coach? What, what happened with the punter? I thought Hunter Niswander was, did a really good job for them. Why did they go out and get the Texans punter? They just want competition in camp, and two, they don't want him kicking so much with no one else around that his leg is dead. I mean, it is more just to split it and, and give you some competition. You don't want him kicking on every team and everything out there uh, throughout the offseason. So that's not a done deal then yet. No, Niswander's going to be here. Yeah, I mean, that is – now, if the other guy beats him out, sure. But I, they really like Niswander, and they think there's something there. Okay. I just didn't know if this was just another one of those, uh, uh, you know, audibles called by uh... – You can't have enough good punters on the team, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. That's at every Super Bowl. We've seen that time and time again. <laughs> yeah. I will say this. I, I, way back early in my career, I covered Rice 
football and that's some really bad football and they had an all-american punter and that convinced me right then <laughs> if you're going to be bad the first thing you got to go get is the best punter you can find if i'm going to yeah. be bad i want somebody who can get me out of trouble and that's what that kid did so it's it's a very important thing when you're really bad <laughs> uh all right, David. I think that's going to do it for us. We've had a, we've talked for a long time. Uh, we, we talked about uh, uh, the performance of, of North Dallas guys, Will Zalatoris and, and Jordan Spieth at the Masters, finished in second and tied for third. That was pretty dang good. And uh, and what that uh, bodes for the future. We talked about uh, uh, the Mavericks and how frustrating they are, uh, and that this team needs to start putting something together here at some point uh, and to be able to sustain something and and, and beat bad teams. You got to beat bad teams, David. That's that's what they always taught me. Uh, well, we, they we, they will give the argument that well we're losing to teams that we're not going to face in the playoffs, and so we're more competitive against the teams we're likely to face. So isn't that good? No, it's not because not if you have a play-in scenario. No, it no, is not no, it's not. And but plus, that's part of that thing about putting your foot on somebody's throat. Yes. that's what you do. That's what. And see, to me, that's the problem here with this Mavericks team. There are no guys like that on this team. You know, not yet. No, uh, you know, they they just don't understand that mentality. I'm not saying they don't want to win. I think that Luka Doncic dies to win, but he doesn't understand that. Yeah, that means that every night I go out here and I put my foot on this guy's throat. You know. Uh, there are just too many times. There was a, there was one moment in that in that uh, Rockets game in particular where there was a loose ball, and I believe it was Dorian Finney-Smith who plays really hard and I like him, but he kind of casually went for the ball. I, I'm thinking, you know, you should have watched the Final Four a little bit. You should have <laughs> seen these guys playing like this is my life. This is you know, it's it's the last game I'm ever going to play. They need a little bit of that uh, occasion. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and we also talked about the the Rangers and about how how brutal that has been watching them uh, recently. The pitching's been an upside, at least recently, hitting. Wow, that's really awful. They're going to have to they're going to have to make some decisions here pretty quick on what to do with some of these young guys to avoid burying them and keeping them from feeling like they're never going to be able to, to hit in the big leagues. And then, of course, the Cowboys in the draft, and that's going to be a continuing topic right up until the final days of the, of the draft. And when we rebrand going into the draft with the new name of this podcast, which is what, Kevin? Sports Day Insider. Yow. Okay. That makes me want to listen. So, uh, from, so <laughs> again, I, I don't think you have the concept on, <laughs> on launching and rebranding exactly the way it should be. Rebranding. I'm going to rebrand myself. I'm going to come up with a new name. I'm just going to be a number. Gonna be, <laughs> I'm going to be number 12. That's, that's going to be my name number 12 uh so from number 12 and everybody else in here to everybody out there thanks and we'll see you next time say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill